This message is brought to you by Twelve Stone Church. Pastor Kevin Myers delivers this teaching entitled, How Do I Live? This is the third message in the series, Good Questions. We hope this serves you well. Please enjoy. After Jesus rose from the dead, the church was launched. Missionaries were called and sent out across the world to teach the good news of Jesus Christ. One of those missionaries was the Apostle Paul. No man in previous history had traveled so far or suffered so much to bring people the truth. He could not stay still or silent while others remained ignorant. Every day he told all about Jesus and his resurrection and yet was undeterred by the lack of response. As he traveled the Eastern Mediterranean, it was in Athens, Greece, where Paul found himself facing some good questions. Paul arrived in that great city of Athens, not as a sightseer, but as a soul winner. Athens was the cultural, educational, and influential center of Greece, much like Atlanta is to Georgia. Paul saw that the city was wholly given to idolatry and it broke his heart. The city was devoted to philosophy as the Athenians spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. As Paul looked around the city, his spirit was stirred by all the marble shrines to pagan gods. He used every opportunity he had to share the gospel, and it didn't take long for the philosophers to hear about the new thing he was teaching, and they approached Paul and invited him to explain his views to the court of the Areopagus, which had the right to expel unacceptable philosophers. As Paul stood in front of these people, he knew what was at stake. Behind them, he saw the marble shrines that represented their misdirected spirituality, and they asked Paul, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? And that was a good question. The philosophers asked Paul a good question. Paul, can you, can you make sense of this new teaching? And so he did in Acts chapter 17. Everybody across the campuses, grab your Bibles. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 17. We're on page 1111, 1111. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible of your own on the way out today at one of the campuses, go to guest information. We'll give you one, a gift from us. If you're turning your worship center Bibles, page 1111, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. We'll start reading at verse 20. Six. Now, Paul, as we've already heard, stood in the Areopagus, meaning that he was in this kind of a town hall environment, which is exactly what we've been doing in this series. So here we are in the town hall environment, and I'm going to talk for, for maybe uh, 13, 14 minutes, and then we're going to get right to the questions. That's what Paul did. In fact, we've been filtering the thoughts of Paul with a, a bit of a picture that I've drawn here on the board. Again, I, I drew it ahead of time because I just can't do it on the fly. So here we go. Uh, there are four core questions in life. And we said, even if it were like you, like you were trying to put a puzzle together, remember that? that the first thing you'd do is you'd, you'd get the four corners. And then you would get all the flat pieces and you would set up the edges, the framework. And, and, and then all the other puzzle pieces would, would fit in the middle of the framework. And, and that applies to life and what, what Paul is doing here. That there are four core questions. And, and when you get the framework of God's word and the truth, then the puzzling questions of life get answered from that framework. Now, I put those four core questions in your teaching notes if you want to jot down for long. The first one is about origin. And, and that is, uh, where did I come from? And we talked about that in the first week of the series. And then we unpacked some Q&A around faith. The second core question in life is a question of meaning. 
And that question is, why am I here? And we unpacked that a little bit last week. And if you've missed the last couple of weekends, get online, catch up on the teaching, catch up on the series. And then we answered questions about culture. Well, here we go with, with week three. And, and the third core question is really around morals. Who am I? You know, really, practically speaking, how do I live? How do, how do I live in this world? And, and so we're going to make some comments ab about that and that just lead right in today to questions about relationship and family and the like as you sent questions in through your campus pastors and we'll ask them here. And then the fourth is around destiny. Where am I going? And we're going to pick that up next week and, and answer some questions. So we're all in Acts chapter 17. Go ahead and let's look at verse 26 and following. From one nation he made all the nations. This is Paul now giving instruction. From one man, he made all the nations. By the way, that little line right there has something to say to our country in the midst of things like Charlottesville. It has some things to say to us as parents and how we teach our kids in moral values. Look what Paul said again. From one man, God made all the nations. That they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this, look, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And find him though he is not far, say it with me everybody, so he is not what? Far. One more time, though he is not what? Far. From any one of us. I want to tell you something, right now, Paul is blowing their minds in the Areopagus. He just said, God did all of this in hopes that you would seek him. But, but know this, when you do seek him, you'll just discover he's not far. He, he was near. Well, they, they don't believe this stuff. They, they think God's disengaged. And he's saying God's intimately engaged. <laughs> Verse 28, for in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. We'll come back to that. Judge the world with justice by the man that is Jesus he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. All right, you got your teaching notes, and the question is, how do I live? Paul, help me. How, how do I live? And I think Paul would say, since God is engaged live righteous and wise. But I put it in two points in your notes. The first is, God is engaged. Everybody say it with me across the campuses. What is it? God is what? Engaged. God is engaged. I want to do a little something here. And, and I want everybody with me to participate. I want everybody online and across the campuses to participate. I want a hands up moment. And I'm going to define a word. I want you to tell me which one is most you. I want to talk about extroverts and introverts for a moment, okay? So if you are more extrovert than introvert, more extrovert means you're a little bit more outgoing than not, means you get a lot of energy from being with other people. You're more extrovert. I want your hands up across all the campuses and right now here. All right, there we go. More extrovert. All right. If you're more introvert, that means, it doesn't mean you're not sociable. It just means people drain you. You're less outgoing than otherwise. It means, it means when you're done with people, you just need to go be alone and get your battery charged. You're more introvert than extrovert, hands up. Okay? And usually, it's always interesting, usually the extroverts are like this and the introverts are like, yeah, I did it, whatever. Because <laughs> you just always tell. So you'll understand 
that in our family, I'm the extrovert, big surprise. <laughs> My daughter, Julissa's more extrovert. And then Marcia, I married an opposite. She's more introvert, socially capable, but <laughs> needs her alone time. And, and my three sons are more like their mom in personality. All introverts. She did that to me. But let's move on. And so you can understand that my oldest, Josh, how he might be affected as an introvert. When we were at McDonald's, he was 12 years old. We were doing our little discipleship, daddy, son, discipleship time, kind of Bible study, faith dialogue. And as we're moving through the material, uh, I said, Josh, I need you to do something. I want you to go to the counter of McDonald's and I want you to order a couple of the cinnamon rolls. Okay, dad, you know, he doesn't like to do, so I'm pushing him to have to, yeah, go interact. And he's capable, but he said, okay, whatever. He said, I just need some money. I said, no, I just want you to go do that. He said, well, I know, but I don't have any money. So, so, so I said, no, I just want you to go. Dad, just give me some money. I'll go up and ask for it. I'll pay for it. I said, no, I want you to just go up and ask and then stand there. <laughs> yeah, but they're going to say, that's like $2 and whatever cents. And then I'm, what am I going to say? I said, don't worry about it. Trust me. I don't even know what that means, Dad. Son, just, would you just go up there and do it? No. No, I won't. No, son, I need you to, I need you to trust me. I just need you. Oh, you can get, how many of you, you already get where the conversation is? That, well, I'm requiring of him. This is difficult, particularly on an intro. So he gets in line. He walks up there. He waits in line. Next person, next person. Before it's his turn, he turns around and walks back to me. Dad, I can't do this. I don't even understand what you're asking me. This is the dumbest thing in the world. I'm not going to go up there stand, because I'm going to look stupid. I mean, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I said, son, trust me. Trust me. Don't worry about it. Just do what I ask you to do. We went through, now he's nervous. Now he's anxious. Now you see the little sweat beads. He does it. He finally gets up there. He does it again. He waits his turn. Finally gets to the front. He orders them. And the lady says, that'll be like $2.12, whatever. And he just freezes. I mean, just. But it's not as long as he thinks it is. He thought it was an eternity. As soon as he said it, I just handed the lady five bucks over his shoulder. Lady had no idea what was going on. He was messed up. We got the change, went back to the seat. And, and what do you think happens at that moment? What happens with all the emotion that just got built up? It's just like, <clears throat> Dad, why did you do that to me? And I said, I'm going to tell you why. Because we were sitting here having a little st Bible study about trusting God. And I could tell it didn't mean anything. It was just information on a page. And this wasn't going to land unless we figured out what it felt like. See, God, your father, says, trust me. And when you can't see, when you think he's letting you hang out there, he's hanging right by you. He's right there. He knows exactly what he's doing. Now, how many of you would have hated to be Josh in that moment? How many of you, you just know, right, you feel bad for Josh. You would have, of course you would. But I knew it would mark him. I said, Josh, God asks me to do stuff like that all the time. Even pastoring 12 stone. I want you to go buy that land. I said, we got no money. He said, I just want you to do it. Well, how's that going to happen? Would you just go order it? No. That's dumb. And then I get halfway into the decision. I'm going to, okay, I got great faith, church. And I'm like, hey, I go back to God. Hey, um, you'll have to solve this early. No, I'll solve it in my time. I mean, trusting him and believing that he's present. See, listen, what Paul was saying to the Athenians was blowing their mind. 
because they didn't believe God was present. I want, I want to take you to the board. I want you to get a hold of this. I want you to see how dynamically different this conversation was going for the Athenians. See, they lived in a world, and Paul understood it, where they said, well, there are many gods, and, and there are many gods, and then down here, this is, this is how you do life. This is how you live. And, and, and the problem is these gods have nothing to do with it because there's a barrier, there's a gap. Say it with me. There's a what, church? gap. There's a gap. And this gap is that the gods are disengaged. And because the gods are disengaged, you got to figure out how you do life all on your own. See, there's a major barrier. They don't come down to us. We can't get up to them. And that's their view. As Paul is talking, he's saying, I'm giving you a dramatically different view of life. What I'm helping you understand is that there is a God and, and he's more than just a God. He's your father in heaven. And he sent his son, Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is among us. And this God, this one God, three in one, not only created you, but this God is fully engaged with you. And so when you say, how do we live? What I want you to know is that there's no gap. There's no what? There's no gap. This God is intimately involved and the dialogue is happening between the two. He is fully present, fully engaged. There's no gap. Even when you can't see him, he's with you. These people that say, oh, God created everything and then he's distant. No, he set this all together on purpose, intimately engaged with you. So that you would seek him. And as soon as you seek him, you think, well, I've got to go a long way to find him. No, you don't. Because he's not far. He's not what? Far. He's not far. There is no gap. I know, I'm not sure I can help you understand how mind-blowing that was to them. And listen, it's probably mind-blowing to us too because we keep acting like he's not going to show up. See, Josh wasn't sure I'd show up. Can I tell you, as soon as you get this right, that God is fully engaged, it changes everything. It, listen, it'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you pray. If, if God, if God was going to host a gathering and he invited you, would you go? You don't have to answer the question. I just want you to ask yourself the question. If God was going to host an event, host a gathering, and he invited you, would you RSVP and say, I'm in, I'm coming? Keep listening. Because on September the 8th, that's what I think is happening, but I want to lay it out for you. On September the 8th, we're going to have a prayer gathering. But I think most of us see prayer as some religious event that we create or moment in our lives, and then we try to get God to show up. And we say, I don't even know if God's here. I don't even know if God's present. I don't even know if God's engaged. I, don't even, I pray and it goes nowhere. It does not. Because we don't understand prayer. What if we're wrong? What if prayer is God hosting a moment and inviting you in? 
And what we need to learn how to do is to come into the presence of God. Scripture actually teaches us how you come into the presence of God. Maybe the reason that we never feel the presence of God because we know how to come into the presence of God, but it's by God's invitation, not ours. You aren't trying to get God to do something. God's inviting you to join him in what he's already doing. God is intimately and fully engaged. It'd be transforming to your prayer life if you knew this. And this gathering is for Prayer warriors. I'm not being shy. I wrote in the bulletin. It's prayer warriors. What do I mean? Two kinds of prayer warriors. The first one is the one who already knows you're a prayer warrior. So you don't need me to talk long about this. You're going to show up because you're like, yeah, I want to be in on what God's going to do. So RSVP, show up. It's going to be powerful. The second are prayer warriors who don't know you're prayer warriors, but in your soul, you wish you were. And you think everybody else at the church has prayer nailed and you don't. And you're wrong. <laughs> Most people have a very defeated prayer life, a discouraged prayer life, a wondering how you break through. How do you get to places with God? You know there's more out there. You don't know how to get there. But if you knew, listen, if you knew there was no gap, if you knew of certainty that he would be there, that as soon as you go to the counter, God's already behind you and you weren't even sure he'd ever show up. If you knew this by fact, change the way you pray. So sign up, be a part of it if you want. And then the reason I'm telling you about it and I put it in the bulletin is, is because I need to know how, how, how much material to prepare. One of the things I'm gonna do is teach everybody how I learned to pray. If you, if you don't know the 12 elements or how to pray, we'll get pretty practical in it, but I need to know how many people to prepare for. And I don't care how many show up. I'll be honest with you, I don't even care. 250 people can show up, I'm gonna do this thing. I don't, it doesn't even matter. 2,500 people can show up, I don't care, we'll do this thing. Now, if too many people sign up, then I'm gonna have to cut it off. So I need to make sure I know. But if God was hosting a gathering, would you come? And if you knew there was no gap, you'd say yes. It changed the way you pray. It changed the way you live. See, it's not just God is engaged. Paul, Paul would say, since God is engaged, now live righteous and wise. Write it down. Live righteous and wise. Say it with me. Live what? Righteous and wise. We'll do it like this. Righteous and wise. See, because he says, Jesus is ultimately going to judge. And when he judges, he will, he will judge with justice. Literally, the word is righteous. He will judge with a rightness, a righteousness. There is a right and wrong, and God has established it. And it's so that we might flourish instead of flounder. It's not to limit us, it's to free us. There is a righteousness and that's what life is judged by. But he wants you to flourish. So, so when you say, how do I live? Well, you first you need to know what's righteous. And then you need to know because what's righteous is what's holy good. So you want to know the goodness. You want to know what's holy good in this situation. Like when it comes to marriage, what's holy good is don't commit adultery. What's holy good is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself for. Wives respect your husbands. This is righteous. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Simultaneously, you need wisdom. And your question on wisdom is, okay, now how does that practically work out in my life? And that's where all our questions are good. But you need the wisdom of God. And if you don't have wisdom based on his righteousness, James 1 says, ask God for wisdom. But see, you would pray different if you really believed that God had no gap and was engaged with you. You believe he'd give you wisdom and you'd pray differently in your marriage and you'd get different answers if prayer was how you heard from God to get the wisdom for, to figure out how to live. Oh my goodness. This, Paul was laying this out. This is going to transform the way they live and the way we live. So let's practice it. Let's, let's ask questions. You have all kinds of questions about family and marriage and parenting. A lot of those questions were sent in. Let's do this. Let's talk about it. Let me, let me hear what we got. Let, let's just go around and whoever has questions. Uh, I got Jason helping. I got Travis helping. Travis, you, you almost jogged. I know. Yeah. Has that ever happened before in your life? <laughs> well, only the refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Richie from Bethlehem Campus. Hey, uh, how do we raise our kids spiritually when we don't, when I don't know the Bible all that well, and we're super busy, work, school, sports, yeah, et cetera? That's a fair question. That, that's probably one of the top questions most, most, most people would ask. First of all, I would applaud the question in this sense. Uh, I think it lands on us as parents. So I think it's the right question to ask. Like somebody else isn't gonna do that, that's on us. So, so I think that's the right question. So how do, how do we raise our kids spiritually when you don't know the Bible well enough? Let, let me, when, when, when somebody feels like they don't know the Bible well enough, here's, here's what I tell most people. You know it better than you think and probably well enough for your kids. Start there. Don't overcomplicate this thing. You know it probably better than you think and well enough for your kids. So don't start with what you don't know about the Bible. Start with what you do know. Have conversations with your kids about what you do know. So I don't know everything about the Bible. Don't start with all the I don't knows. You say, well, I don't know 70% of the Bible. Okay, tell me about the 30% you do know. And make sure you pass that on. And as you get into that and engage your kids and engage that conversation, if we want to talk more about how that works out, we can do that. But, but as you do that, you find yourself drawn in. You keep learning more. The more you teach, the more you learn. The more you learn, the more you can teach. So it builds in you. But I want to get something else. You said we're busy in this culture. <laughs> how many people are busy? Just out of curiosity, how many people are busy? How many have like two days a week you have nothing to do and you can't come up with anything to do? Any hands for that? No, you know why? Because we're all busy, right? right? So the question isn't busy. The question is priority. Would that be fair? So what you have to figure out in life is how, what kind of culture will you set in your family to raise spiritually awake kids. What kind of culture do you set in your family to raise spiritually awake kids? And that means you're gonna have to make some things sacred. Everybody say that word with me. Make some things what? Sacred. Some things have to, you, listen, every culture you build is distinguished by what's sacred. Things that can't be messed with. Like take a Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, who doesn't want Chick-fil-A? But how many of you are annoyed? Because on Sunday, you can't get you any Chick-fil-A. Come on, give me some Chick-fil-A. Has that bothered you, Travis? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> it's, we're already in some emotional pain. I see it. But what do they do on Sunday? They decided long ago that they were going to set a culture in their business that because God said one out of seven days don't work, they said, we're just going to practice that for our whole business. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to do it that way. What I'm saying is they pick something sacred and they put up closed sign. Stay with me. If in your family and with your kids, you don't set a culture for when you're closed, for when there are things that it's sacred time, there's a family night. There's a time when we talk through things about faith. There's a time when you date your wife and that's sacred. See, you begin to put sacred in and your kids can see that if that sacred is built around the righteousness of God and the wisdom of God, you've already taught your kids a whole bunch before you even get to the Bible questions. Anyhow, I gotta stop, but that's a great question. Any, any follow-up to that? Are we making sense? Um, you got anything, any more on that or shall we move on? What other questions do we have? Anybody else? Another question? Hi, I'm Mark from the Buford campus. Hey, Mark. 
and uh, this might not, this might just be us, but at what point um, do you practice tough love with your kids when they won't listen to you? <sighs> Marcia's in this group tonight, and honey, honestly, have we ever had that problem? <laughs> Don't our yeah our our kids have always listened. Uh, it's just us. All right, so, thanks for your time. Yeah, let's go. So, I, so but thank you for you being honest. Okay. Uh, Let's start with the word love, okay? Uh, all of us love our kids, and we gotta figure out what does that love look like and how do you translate that? And the, uh, the earlier you win the will versus will battles, the clearer it is to your kids as you grow through the years. I'd say if the first time you need to get your kids to listen is around middle school, that's gonna be a more challenging time than if you started that conversation at like five years old. Right. And most believe, and now I'm not going off from scripture, scripture doesn't say, you know, at this age and this stage, solve this, it doesn't say that. It just teaches you that you should lead your family and your children should be in submission or in response to their parents. They're not adults, they're not in control, they're young long enough for you to imprint them. So, first of all, you love them and you want the best for them and because of that, you're the one that answers the four corner questions. You're the one that's putting boundaries in life. You're the one that's setting culture for the family. You're the one that's setting sacred inside the family. You're the one that's making the parameter of decisions. You're setting values inside this family of how we get along and how we do life. So if they're getting that early, you're going to have all kinds of will versus will confrontations and you handle them one at a time. And what you're doing is you're helping them understand, first of all, how to follow you, eventually how to lead themselves. I would say you're always doing tough love. If you've done it well, you're always doing tough love. I think when you ask the question, there might be times when it gets more dramatic than others, right? Yes. Do you want to go somewhere with that? Because <laughs> no. you look like you were about to say, <laughs> no. and no. But okay. does it get easier the older they get? <sighs> you know, it does with certain personalities, and it doesn't with others. Like, I have one of our children is more compliant than the other's. He makes you think you're a phenomenal parent. <laughs> I mean, really, like, oh my goodness, you guys are good. But then the other ones make you feel like you might be uh, less than a phenomenal parent. Right. And so if you get a maverick, self-willed child, uh, you're going to have problems probably the whole way. They Thanks. will just <laughs> kill, just drag, just, just emotionally destroy. And you're like, why do you always have to be like, why do we got to fight all the way to the end? But love is always tough enough to be loving. Okay. Now, I'm going to say something about tough love. If what guides you is the principle and what keeps you in the parenting game is love, and you draw the lines regardless how exhausting, then you choose not to react in anger or discipline in anger, then you're in the best place to exercise tough love. There's no need to feed the monster with anger. Right. And the earlier you draw the lines, the better. And some need the lines drawn the whole time. And that's why God lets them become teenagers and you send them to college or somewhere. <laughs> and you say, good, you're on your own. Right. But my goal in parenting is to lead them in order to teach them how to be self-led. That's the, it's, listen, it's not for things to be calm for me. It's not for things to be easy for me. I am trying to raise an adult. 
and you are not an adult if you cannot lead and discipline yourself. That's right. All right, okay. Let me so, add to that. Not that I've ever done this. Uh, if you lose your temper mm-hmm. and anger does come out, do you apologize to your kids? Yes, I have. Yes, I've done all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids have had an ability to uh, be a mirror and treat me the way uh, I treated my parents and have some of those kind of, mm-hmm. you know, will versus will things going on and then they exasperate and then you know you lose your temper and you say or do something and you're like okay I handled that wrong okay so listen so so my discipline was right but the way I handled it was wrong mm-hmm. and that's really complicated depending on the age of the child so I have had that conversation more than once where I said you know what this isn't going to change your punishment it's just an apology for how I handled it. Mm. What you did was wrong, disrespectful, disobedient. And that doesn't work here and you know that. How I handled it was not mature and as loving as daddy wants to be. And you know daddy loves you. Daddy's not going after you. I'm not trying to control you. I'm not trying to fit you into some little box. I'm not trying to give you less life. I'm trying to give you a better life. So dads can get mad too. And I'm supposed to contain it and I did not. Mm-hmm. I hope you'll forgive me. I am truly sorry. It doesn't change the consequence. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing has happened at different stages. Yeah. Is that to your no, question? Helpful. Is, that, are we at, is this, are these real things that were, so if you have more to, to go on, we can keep on that. Go somewhere else, question over here. Uh, Jason from the Hamilton Mill hey, campus. Jason. So uh, we all love our kids and uh, you know, the Bible says, you know, if, uh, some, some, if you get angry or something does, somebody does something to you, you turn the other cheek. Yeah. So what do you tell your kid when he's being bullied? Yeah. Do you tell him, turn the other cheek? Or, you know, because the feeling is, <laughs> I don't want you to touch my kid. So, so uh, how would we handle that? Yeah, That's a, a very fair question. Uh, part of the complexity of the answer is age and stage. Okay, so um, I, can't, I, I almost have to, I'll give some principles and then I'll, I almost have to pick an age, okay? okay? Okay. So when they're young, their sense of being somebody is being formed. It's really complicated in the elementary years because when you're bullied, you're, you got your identity from your parents, which is where you're supposed to get it. Your parents help you form your identity. But then when you get in school, you're starting to transfer that and you're getting reactions from people and you're not as special as you thought you were. And, and so when you, you get bullied, you find out that there are different kinds of people and it's very complex. So the first thing I have to do is principally teach my kid that everybody doesn't love everybody like Jesus loves everybody. Right. And so you're going to encounter a very complicated world. So I let reality see at the level that they're experiencing it. And then I say, you should not be bullied or expect to be bullied. And that's why God puts uh, authorities in line like teachers and principals, etc. And so you need to go to your teacher and, you, and oh, I don't want to do that. I said, no, at this stage of your life, you can do that, but daddy will help you. So we may go and sit down with the teacher and take my kid and have the conversation because I want them to be a part of the experience. Okay, we got, we got to stop bullying. And the teacher needs to execute the management of that in the school system. We don't hit, we don't fight back. We don't use violence. Violence isn't going to help us, okay? You got that one. Right. Okay. Now let's go outside that. Let's say it happens outside the school and there's really nobody to manage that. Okay. Then what do we do? We've literally, I've done this. I've gone to the home 
of the kid. And if you don't think that's complicated, go treat. How many of you have ever had to do that? I mean, we've just had to go to our neighbor. I'm like, okay, this has to end. I mean, they're throwing rock, little rocks and they're saying stuff to my kid. And I'm just, oh, I don't want to do this. So I go to the neighbor's house. I'm like, hey, hey, how you doing? Oh, I was doing better. But let's talk. <laughs> uh, and it feels so awkward. I'm like, just go beat him up. I just read, <laughs> just have an older sibling beat him up. You know what I mean? I mean, literally, this was going through my head. Right. But I, the dad came to the door and I couldn't beat him up. So I'm like, okay, so, so we won't go to violence because I won't win. Uh, so, so then I had the conversation with the family. And surprisingly enough, it, it like went well and, and, and the family managed it, okay? So now it happens out in the world when, when they're on their own. I said, you do everything to get away. If you can't get away, everybody listening? <laughs> I have told them. I'm not saying it's right. right. I have told them. You have no choice. If you have no choice, you have to defend yourself. Okay. You have to defend yourself. Don't encourage it. Don't want it. Better, better convince me that you had to. Okay, I'm going to the extreme for, for a point. Now, let's go back to a real situation again. Uh, it happened in middle school. My daughter was being bullied in middle school, later middle school years by some boys. And if 12 Stone has heard back in the day, and some of you love the story, it's one of my favorite stories. I won't tell the whole story. Well, why, why won't I tell the whole story? It's a great story. <laughs> uh, so they're bullying my, my daughter, and we, we do all these processes. And I said, I'm going to help you because we can't get it right. So then I told her, watch where they get dropped off. And um, tomorrow I'm going to show up on my motorcycle. I'm going to put all my leathers on. I'm going to pray to God the mom or dad is short. And, <laughs> and, and I'm going to end this thing. And I did. And I sat in front of the house and the bus dropped them off. And they walked down the road and I barked the bike a little bit. I could tell people from the neighborhood were like looking outside their windows. And then uh, I walked up to the house as the boys walked up to the house. And, and, and the mom came out. Uh, May I help you? I said, yes. I said, these are your sons. And they're bullying my daughter and I want to stop. She says, uh, they're not mine. They're his. And she went back in the house. And, she, and the man came out. I said, may I help you? And I said, your kids are bullying my daughter uh, on, on the bus. And her name's Julie. And he looked at his boys and says, are you doing this? They said, we don't even know who Julie is. He looked at me and said, it's them. <laughs> and he said, boys, I never want this man on my lawn again, ever, or you will deal with me. He says to me, is that good enough for you? I says, it is if it works. Yeah. And I turned around and sauntered to the bike, <laughs> lit it up, drove home, hero to my daughter. Here's what I'm saying. I don't think the answer is you do nothing, but I think you do everything you can to no violence. But you start with, we love people, we value people but you are not a whipping post for other people. And when Jesus said, turn the other cheek, I think it's mostly an adult conversation among adults. Okay. I don't even know if I agree with everything I said. I'll go back and listen to it. <laughs> Honey, did I, should I correct anything there? We okay with that? Was that close? You'll tell me later what to correct, won't you? Yeah. And this is real stuff. It's in our families, it's in our relationships. What else? Hey, Lang from uh, Brazelton. Um, so... The other day, and sorry, it's a hard question, but... Um, Thanks. Thanks for telling me how to... It's, did you know what question. that meant? That Heads meant like, up. prepare yourself. Prepare so, yourself. Okay, you ready? I mean, Here I we go. Did, I just didn't know how to address that as a dad, but uh, we're watching TV, and you know how the, the news, they, they just flash, like, this is what's coming up. Um, and they were talking about the stuff that's going down in Charlottesville. You kind of touched on that. Um, and my daughter was like, what is that? And so, you know, they're flashing, you know, the... Um, uh, the Nazi symbol and, and like neo-Nazi and and she was just like, Dad, you know what is that? What's going on? Um, and then of course they talked about the the, the lady who died uh, and who passed away and I didn't know how to address it. Um, she's in middle school. I just poked her in the ribs and said, "It's too old for you. Just go to bed." Right? And um, but how in a culture that's divided, you know, um, how do we parent out of that? 
Um, how do we reconcile that so that we can say, hey, um, this is this for, for that reason? I, I don't know. Um, okay. I really don't know. Uh, first of all, let's everybody right here applaud. He said it would be a hard question, and it is. Let's give him credit. The man is discerning. You're very discerning. You nailed it. You're right. It is hard. Uh, there's almost no way to answer this question without somebody creating a conclusion I didn't make. But I'm going to go after it kind of head on because that's what I would do. First of all, by time middle school, and I'm going to speak specifically to your situation, I would have a bigger conversation if I were you. You do what you want. Uh, my son, Jaden, is 14. Uh, we had a big conversation this week, and we have been having them, about what's going on and what's going on in the country. We talk very openly about racism. We describe what it is and what it means, why people feel it, experience it, what scripture teaches. And so we go right back to this stuff. If I can, just take a moment to go back to the board. Okay, remember, we're just, so I go and I'm like, okay, so son, the first thing, because I have to teach, see, listen, you think you're answering the question for your daughter about what's happening in Charlottesville and you're not. You're teaching your daughter how to think. Not what to think, how to think. If you teach her how to think, she'll always know what to think in the moment. So the reason you use these is because they're culturally relevant. So you say, honey, let me talk to you. God's fully aware of what's going on. And God created a beautiful world that should be fu function well, and it doesn't. But listen, God's involved. There's no gap here. And so we got to figure out how do we live? And the first thing we got to ask ourselves is what's righteous, and then we got to say what's wise. So let's talk about what's righteous. Should people be evaluated in their worth based on their skin color. I mean, have that conversation with her. I mean, what is racism? If it's not saying that somebody's inferior and, or superior based on their color of skin. Mm -hmm. And what do we just read in Acts chapter 17? From one man, God established all nations. Like we're all in the brotherhood and sisterhood. I know it messes us up. I know we don't have all the answers. I know it just like some people are like, come on, how can that be? That's how God did it. Welcome. There is no inferior or, or superior race, period, end of discussion. And, and you have to set, you want to set that for you. So that's the beginning point. That's righteous. And then God establishes how we love one another, value one another. And this is the values we bring into this home, this wish. But honey, what you're seeing is this doesn't happen everywhere. That, that's why we have to bring God into this world. Because the world's broken, the world's messed up. And the way the world's handling it now is not wise. See, violence does not make people righteous. This is never going to win. Now, I could have that conversation without going into all the details, mm -hmm. without unpacking everything. But listen, don't ask questions. Don't answer questions they're not asking. And don't fail to answer the questions they are asking. Don't go further than they do. Let them push it further. Mm -hmm. Well, what about that la lady that died? Well, let me tell you what happened. And then you say that there was somebody who thought that people's value was based predominantly on their skin color. And when you think that, you start thinking you're better and they're less. Or maybe you feel like you're inferior, but to make yourself feel better. Have you ever had to do that, honey? Have you ever, ever been like with your girlfriends or somebody at school and you, feel, you don't feel good about yourself so you overdo something because you want to feel good about yourself? 
I don't know what was going on, but that's kind of what they did. So I'd give an illustration in her world and apply it to the world okay. and say somebody did something really violent, really scary, and it's really sad. And so our nation is fighting right now. But I'm telling you what, if this was one nation under God, we wouldn't be divided, we'd be united. But we removed God. And now we're fighting over who's going to be God. Mm. And that's a problem in this nation. If we get back to God, this stuff could work. So I would have that kind of an open dialogue, which I've had with, with uh, Jaden. Is that, am I getting anywhere to you? Yeah, totally. So, okay, yeah. okay, good. Thanks for asking it. Trey from the Snellville campus. I have conversations with You're men and women. You're the campus pastor. Trey, okay. All right, let's just own it. Trey, campus pastor from the Snellville campus. And they're all wildly applauding right now at your campus. Well, now they are. Thanks for they love you. The there you yeah, go. Trey. I have conversations pretty often with men and women who love God, love yep. the church, who've raised kids, who've grown up, gone to college, gone into the real world, and they left God, they've left the church, they've yeah. left the faith. How would you guide a parent to interact with a prodigal adult child? Well, let me keep it specifically to, to your question um, and make it to an adult prodigal. Uh, first of all, I, I've walked alongside families and friends and it's excruciating. So there's no way for me to, to answer that's like asking, you know, somebody you love died, how do you handle that? Um, grieving? The answer to that is grieving. How do you get through that? Grieving. Because it will feel like um, someone you love died. And all that you poured in is being lost. Uh, that's one very real emotional uh, and relational side to this. Okay, that's one side. Next. Uh, you don't have to agree with somebody to be in relationship. So when Paul said, as far as it is possible, be at peace, literally be in relationship with others, I would work really hard since you've spent your life raising them in the knowledge of God and they know where you stand. You probably don't have to keep reminding them. So I would avoid the condemning Engage the encouraging and stay in the relationship so that when they want to turn back toward the Lord, they can turn back toward you. Mm. Scripture gives us something about the patience of God. And God knows how to handle prodigal kids. And most of us have been prodigal kids toward him. Right. We had seasons of life when we were far from him. And it will tenderize you as an apparent when your kids go prodigal to what God has had to navigate in this broken world. And it will probably take you places spiritually you never could have gone and you never wanted to go. And you see the compassion of God and you exercise that with your adult children. Third thing is you pray like crazy because there is no gap and God is intimately involved and there's nothing you can say to change their mind. But if the Holy Spirit repeatedly whispers it and messes with their circumstances, yay, God, That's bring good. them back home. Awesome. So, Thanks, good man. question. Thanks. I'm going to give you an easy one. I'm Thank Ray you. from uh, Sugarloaf. Hey, Ray. So how do we help our kids gain a proper perspective on marriage and, and more importantly, God's role in marriage when all around them um, divorce, single-family homes are so prevalent? Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, let me give two. Kidding about the easy part, by yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, first of all, if you have a great marriage, you've taken care of that. So, so to begin with, our hope when Marsh and I got married, eventually had children, and then kept having them. Then kept anyhow. Um, <laughs> it was to build a model of what God valued in marriage in a very imperfect marriage. There was no intention to build a perfect marriage because it doesn't exist. An imperfect marriage will teach as much as a perfect marriage because there is no perfect marriage, which means this. When it's not working, we can have the conversation. We can process stuff. Some's appropriate with them. Some's not appropriate with them. So that's the first answer. Go build one. And then you won't have to worry about the world because your kids, listen, your kids get their core out of what they're raised with in your family. Now, let's go to the next step. Let's say they're from the broken family. I am, we all know that. I, I came from a broken family in a, a single parent home and it happened when I was 11, 12 years old. If you don't think that messes somebody up, back when it wasn't even popular or if it, a lot of people doing it. And um, I don't know if my mom knew she was doing this, but she stayed in relationship at the church with probably three or four strong families with marriages. And I got the feeling years later that she had conversations with them ahead of time and said, listen, he's never gonna, my kids are never gonna figure out healthy marriage if they can't watch one. Can they watch yours? Can we come around from time to time? One of the beautiful things in the church that a lot of people never figure out is that there can be a lot of brokenness and a lot of wholeness. And you can come from brokenness on your way to wholeness and have things in places that you wish they were not. Maybe you're in a single home. You're like, man, I didn't want to be here. Maybe it happened through, through uh, death or, or, or reasons beyond yours. Maybe you didn't want to be divorced and the person blew up or walked away. But you can be in a church family and you can get in places like small group and you can get in environments. You can go serve alongside other people and you can let your kids watch stronger, healthier marriages. And I would use them as examples. And my mom did. She says, you see that right there? I mean, she literally said these things. Son, what your dad and I did will destroy your someday marriage. Marriage is beautiful. Don't walk away from it, but do it like them. And, and she was like intentional about it. I'm like, well, that really gave me permission. Like she owned this wasn't healthy. You don't want to repeat this? Watch that. And it, it was powerful for me, anyhow. Good okay, stuff. great Thanks. question. Thanks. All right, well, we've hit a lot of good questions. And at some point, uh, like we've said each week, Paul had to bring it to an end. And then he said he'd come back. And we'll be back next week with more questions. But you're left with a challenge. Do you live as if there's a gap and God's disengaged? Or do you pray and live like there's no gap, like God is intimately engaged? And are you allowing that to change the way you live, change the way you pray? So as I turn the service over to the campus pastors, we want to pray for you with the knowledge. And this is no casual prayer. God is engaged. So there you have it. Kind of a unique, fun way for us to go after this series. But I want to pray with you. So bow your heads with me. Father, we're all at different places and stages in various relationships. And I think right now we would pray different. If we knew there was no gap between us and you. That you're fully engaged. 
So Father, I want to pray over relationships. But as I do, those of you who are near shot of this prayer, listening here online in the cafe theater, maybe as I'm praying, you should begin to offer up your prayers. What would your prayer be to God right now? Maybe it's over something in your marriage. Maybe it's in a parent-child family relationship. Maybe it's between siblings. Maybe it's as a student to your parents. Maybe it's an extended family member. Maybe it's with adult children. Maybe it's a friendship, coworker. God, right now, prayers are offered up right now, being brought to you to say, God, help me understand what is righteous, what is right and wrong, and, and, and what are the principles you put in play? And God, would you give me wisdom? I'm not sure how to navigate this. Maybe some of us in our marriage kind of drifting towards some really rough places and, and thinking and saying in our own soul, man, I, God, I don't know how to get to the other side. Maybe we just think if we'd run, if we'd quit, if we'd walk away, that this would get better. That's never true. Maybe, God, you could even perform something of a miracle. You could bring back together so much that is often broken. And so right now, numbers of us saying, dear God, would you step into this specific situation? Would you give me wisdom at this point in our marriage? Would you help me as a parent? Would you help me as a sibling? Would you, would you help me? And on and on the prayers go. So Father, I know what your nature is, that you would not only hear our prayers, but you'd begin to work in us and you would invite us to greater intimacy with you and to trust you and to walk not only in your righteousness, but in the very wisdom you would speak to us. So may we walk from here and do more than having heard. May we actually apply, live out, and put in practice what you are instructing us. And may you get all the glory as you grow our relationships in Christ's name. And everyone agreed saying, amen.